So would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 through 25. We have to keep in mind, I suppose I will say this every Sunday until we're through with John. In John chapter 20, as John is coming to an end at the end of 21, in in chapter 20, John says, I've written this to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing in his name, you would have life or you would have life thus believing in his name. I told you that aside from the resurrection itself, I told you last time that John presents eight miracles in his gospel. We've already covered one of them. Everything else, including the miracles all the way through, is the Holy Spirit through John's hand presenting evidence of the person of the Christ. It started out so powerfully and it continues that way. It started out telling us, of course, that before he accommodated himself to a man, Jesus was God the Son. And as God the Son was from the the Godhead, from our great triune God was and is the agent of creation or he's the creator. He's not the agent of anything. He's the creator. And then he just simply says in verse 14, John chapter one, that the word, uh, the word became flesh. He existed himself then in flesh. He has been introduced as the lamb and Christ is now, has been selecting his disciples, teaching them. The teaching continues. The teaching is in everything that Christ does and in what Christ says. We'll see that more as we get into this uh, text today, beginning in verse 13. It is the account of Christ casting out the money changers. Malachi chapter three and verse one says, Yahweh shall suddenly come into his temple. Christ just some days earlier by John the Baptist has been proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've already studied how John, of course, believed in him from as far as he could from his perspective, according to the will of God. John then encouraged his disciples to believe in Jesus. And so some of his disciples become followers of of Jesus. Then Jesus calls certain men to be his disciples. And there are gaps of time. And you have to understand that Jesus in those gaps of time between the accounts that were given in the gospel accounts, 
Jesus is teaching his disciples. The great truth, the great truth that Christ would teach his disciples is that the doctrine of the Christ in the Old Testament presents the truth that the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, comes first as a suffering servant and then as a, as a victorious king of all kings, the king of the kingdom. His teaching then, and we gather this from a lot of different things in the four accounts, his teaching to his disciples and to the crowds when they assembled and he would separate himself. For example, one, one occasion he got in a boat and came out a little bit from the people so that they wouldn't press upon him for healing and all. He wanted to teach them. As a matter of fact, the gospel says uh, Jesus came teaching. He was teaching them about himself and that the correct doctrine of the Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, would be the, the truth that he would first come as a suffering servant. This is something that really not even his disciples could understand until after the resurrection and still not completely understand until Christ took the 40 days between his, between his resurrection and his ascension and he opened the scriptures to them. The Bible says, the Gospel of Luke, and then, in addition to that, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the, the comforter, the teacher, the one who seals and, and opens the scriptures for us even further. So the great teaching is that in his first coming, and this is what we're still teaching today. We're teaching that Christ came the first time as a suffering servant. He died on the cross. It was necessary. We cannot save ourselves. There is no way that we can work or that we can present goodness in any way or any kind of behavior to so impress God that he would feel moved to save us based on our own righteousness. That's impossible. The Bible is replete with that message. Addendum to that is the message that we need a savior. The savior is meticulously described as the Messiah who then is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. So his disciples begin to pick up on this and we'll see more about this as we get into this passage of scripture. Now apparently between where we were last time and where we are this time, having taught his disciples some they were dismissed because he calls them back to himself a second time. John doesn't record that. The other three gospels do. So they apparently, having bought in to the truth about Jesus, apparently were dismissed so that for, a, for a space of time so they could go back and make preparations necessary to get their houses in order so that they could come back then and follow Jesus Absolutely and completely. So this is when Christ now has his, his disciples have gathered back to him. And everything that is being presented is so that you and I could understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the hero of the Bible, the king of the kingdom, the savior of all 
who would come to him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in his name, we would have life, namely, eternal life. So let's first of all think of where Jesus was. And we start here in verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was near. Ordinarily, Jerusalem had about a couple of hundred thousand residents. Somewhere in that broad category. It was a big city for its day, but not nearly as crowded as it was during the time of Passover because of the requirements of, of uh, Moses. Josephus writes in his history of the time that there could have been as many as two to two and a half million Jews who'd come from all parts of the world to Passover. So every room that was available, not just, not just rooms in the inn, in the various inns, but rooms in people's houses. Of course, it was just one big family and uh, people would open their houses and people from other parts of the, of the world would come and stay in people's houses. They would also find places to set up temporary housing. But these, these hundreds of thousands, these millions of Jews were crowding in to Jerusalem. Christ went to every Passover, but this is his first Passover as Messiah. He has been announced. He has been introduced. The Holy Spirit like a dove has descended upon him. The truth about who he is has been revealed and he has begun his ministry. And it's interesting that he begins and ends his ministry casting out money changers. He, he begins and ends his ministry the same way. He starts out by warning them, by warning them that he is on the father's business as Messiah he is the representative of the Father. He is the Son. And so he begins in casting out money changers by teaching his people that it's a place of prayer. It's a place of praise. It's a place of worship. They're coming before God Almighty. And it's his temple. He suddenly comes into his temple and now, although he's seen it, I'm sure, throughout his life, now he comes into this temple as Messiah. So the way things that have slowly uh, evolved or devolved into what they were in the time of Jesus in and around the temple grounds simply was not acceptable to God Almighty who is there in the flesh. So he begins by telling them he is there about the father's business and he, he intends to straighten things up. At the end of his ministry, he comes back, things, are, things haven't changed really. And so at the end of his ministry, right before he goes out and he says, you know, there won't be one stone left on another and then he gives the Olivet Discourse about his second coming. Just before he does that, 
he goes in again and deals with these money changers. But then he makes the proclamation at the end of his ministry, this proclamation. Your house is left to you desolate. And when God in the person of Christ walked out of that temple, God would not be there again. In the prophecies, in his prophecy, Christ prophesied the destruction of the temple. Indeed, in 70 AD, as you should be aware, Titus, the Roman general, came in with his Roman hordes and destroyed, killed Jews by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands and destroyed the temple, tore it down completely, knocked the blocks down, and it was leveled. And life for the Jew changed forever with the loss of that temple. So Christ, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he would go into the temple and he found those in the temple selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting. Here was the deal. Let's say that I'm a, I'm a Jew and I've come for sincere worship and I brought the best of my flocks and I have made a trip of hundreds of miles and I live on the outer edge of the Roman Empire and the coin, the coinage that was used where I lived was either Roman coin or Greek coin. But the only thing acceptable in the temple was the temple money. So money changers would have to change. This was a requirement. You know, the, the high priest owned the business. He owned the whole thing. So he's making a killing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of, of Jews coming in on a daily basis, bringing the best they had, a sheep, a dove, whatever, so that it would pass the test. And nearly always the, high, the, the priesthood would say, nope, not good enough. You got to just do away with that and go over here to our specialty shop. And we got pre-approved sacrifices right over here. Now you travel all that way bringing the best thing that you had which was what the law required but it didn't pass the test of the priesthood. So the poor worshiper had to go and find one and buy it. So he had to pay money for that. But before he could do anything in the temple to pay his temple tax and all the other stuff, he had to go to the money changer. They were charging 10 to 12%. You bring a Roman coin, it's worth a dollar. Let's just say the temple tax, a shekel, we'll just go with a dollar. It's easier for me. And so the money changer would say, okay, you have a dollar, so I'm going to give you temple money of 88 cents. What? 88 cents. That's all you get. So you lose money with the money changes. Then you got to take a diminished amount of money and go buy your sacrifice with it and pay your temple tax. And if you have anything left, you got to go back and change the temple tax money into your money because you got to go home and you got to pay 10 to 12% again. And the high priest was pocketing all this money. Man, this was a lot of money, especially at the time of Passover. So the Bible says 
um, in verse 14, and he found those in the temple selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting. That is, that was their place. They were in there where worshipers were supposed to be going in worshiping. Okay, you're, you're losing nearly half your money before you go back home. You're upset. I mean, I can understand. You know, you, you're not in the, you're supposed to be in a mindset of worship and praise and, and offering sacrifices and Passover and what God did for the Jews and letting them out of Egypt and all that. But your mind goes to other things. I can see perhaps how that might happen. Not just that though. Overall, the Israelitish nation had become hypocrites. Most of them were there, not, not because their hearts yearned to do these things, but because it was required to come at least a certain time, once a time, you know, it was required and begrudgingly perhaps most of them made the trip. So hearts weren't right and this was nothing more than a bazaar. And the money changers were loud and they were arguing with worshipers who were coming in and they were stern and staunch and you had temple guards who were armed with clubs and they had arrest power inside the temple and they had the power to beat you over the head if they didn't like what you were doing or what you were saying. So it was, a, it was an interesting time. And then not just far away was Fort Antonio, which was higher than the temple so that the Romans could watch what the Jews were doing. And if they got out of hand, they'd come down and they'd, they'd send a group of their soldiers in to settle the thing down. Jesus goes in and finds the Lord suddenly came into his temple. And on down there in Malachi, it says, and he will purify the Levites. He will purify the priesthood. So the Lord himself in his temple takes matters into his own hands. And this is what Jesus did in verse uh, 15. <clears throat> and having made a whip of cords, he drove all of them out from the temple, both sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he overthrew the tables. And he said to those selling doves, take these things from here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now the Jews <clears throat> would never ever dare to call God their father because that would equate them with God, make them the same as God. Now they hear, here's a guy, he has for all the other years just sort of been unknown. Nobody really would know him, <clears throat> but now he comes in as the Messiah. Things are different. And the Lord has come into his temple suddenly. And he, in, his, in, in essence, says here where he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade or a house of commerce. Uh, we get our word emporium from that Greek word. Don't make this an emporium. This isn't some kind of flea market. This is my father's house. A house of worship, 
a house of prayer, a house of praise, a house of reading scripture, a house of singing song to the praise of Yahweh. This is my father's house. The high priest thought it was his house to do whatever he wanted to. And so Christ looks around, he finds some ropes, he ties them together, he makes a whip and he starts running out the money changers, throwing over their tables, throwing the coins everywhere and forcing them to take the sheep, the oxen and the doves out of there. That's because the father said in his law that he would take the best that a person had. It didn't say anything about you're going to have to buy another one from a priest if you come in with something flawed. It doesn't say that at all. The father's mandate was for people to bring the best they had. If they were poor, they could bring a dove. If they were richer, if they were better off, they could bring a sheep. They had to bring the best one they had. That's all that was required. So all of this, according to God himself, is just illegal. Has absolutely no place in the worship of Yahweh. To, to let somebody else declare that a sacrifice is acceptable. So... Do not make my father's house a house of commerce, an emporium, a house of trade. Making himself now calling God his father and calling this house his father's house, making it his house, he declares a house of trade, an emporium. He declares that they've turned it into a commercial enterprise, a, a center of commerce. God himself in the presence of Christ said, this is not acceptable. So he turns everything over. Now understand that Christ is in control of everything. You would have thought that it would have created a turmoil, but not really. It, 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 created, it created obviously uh, a disturbance, but not enough for the soldiers up in Fort Antonio to, to send down a platoon of soldiers to straighten things out. Something about Christ came across authoritative in, in such a way that they had never experienced before. And the presence of God just then in the presence of money changers and these, these crooks would have just at that moment melted their hearts to the points that they had to agree. They had to submit to what Christ was doing. So the disciples are being taught, this is the temple of the Christ. This is his father's house. He's God in our presence. And he takes charge He's in authority. He's well higher than the high priest. He's the Christ, the Messiah. So continue with that thought. What did the disciples learn? This is important for us. Remember, 
This whole book is given so that we would believe in Jesus and be saved, have life in his name. Here's what they begin to learn. The whole Bible is about Jesus. All of it. The slightest stroke of a pen. It, it can never disappear. It will always be with us. The efforts of man can never destroy nor can never ever nullify the word of God. It is the story of God who came in Christ to save his own and redeem us from the fall. We are born in the first Adam. We're born again and saved in the last Adam. And all of the Old Testament is building the case leading up to the New Testament. And when we study the Old Testament, we wish we, there's only one way to study it. And that's in the light of Christ. We've, we've spent some agonizing Wednesday nights going through the chronology in First Chronicles. But the Lord has shown to us in that chronology the story of Jesus. The progressive story, the unstoppable, irrevocable story of Jesus. Just as prevalent in who he is and what he does in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. So what are the disciples learning? They are learning that the Bible is about Jesus. So let's look at this in verse 17. His disciples remembered that which was written, and it is this, the zeal of your house will consume me. Literally, has eaten me up. Now it's a psalm of David. It's a song of the lilies. Shoshanin. It's, it's a, in other words, it's a beautiful thing. There may be thorns all around, but there's this lovely flower that is this psalm. This psalm. It's a messianic psalm, but it is a, it's a psalm both about David and about the Christ. If you read it and study it, you'll, you'll, you'll see what's being said. David was facing the problem that existed in the time of Jesus with regard to the people of God. They didn't care about the things of God in David's day. He was the king who was after in pursuit of the heart of God. Obviously unable to comprehend how God's own people could not feel the same way about Yahweh as David did. And David says, you know, the zeal of your house, in David's day, it would have been the, the tabernacle set up in, in that time. The zeal of your house eats me up. Now the rest of that verse goes like this and those 
Chapa. The Hebrew word means those who scorn you. I think it's translated reproach. Those who scorn you scorn me. You say something blasphemous about my Lord. You've crossed the line. And when you spoke against him, you spoke against me. That's what David says. That's what the Messiah. The disciples remembers this. The disciples remember this. And the Holy Spirit plants it in their hearts in remembrance that it was by the zeal of the house of his father that the son was consumed. So introduced in his public ministry in the temple, he comes in violently. He comes in angrily. And he literally, aggressively attacks the situation with a weapon in his hand. I like it. Surely he was a, a powerful presence, but more than that, it was, the, it was the presence of who he is. And they left because of who Christ is. And if there was reproach to the Father, there was reproach to the Son. If God was reproached, then surely Messiah was scorned as well because it is always God and his Christ. God and his Christ, even in the Old Testament. It's no other way. So the disciples begin to learn that the whole Bible is about Jesus and this is something that they will continue with force and power after the day of Pentecost. But it starts here. Uh, verse 18, Therefore the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Therefore the Jews said, In forty-six years... This temple was built and you will raise it up in three days. However, he was speaking concerning the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised up out from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They asked for a sign. Jesus gave them the greatest sign of all. His personal resurrection from the dead. Jesus knowing that as the story would develop, his ministry would develop, they would become his bitter enemies and finally conspire to bring about his death. It's okay. I'll just get up. This is the sign. I'll give you a sign. And the sign is this. Destroy this temple. 
and I will appropriately in three days raise it up again. So he gives them the sign of his resurrection. His disciples remembered that. What? They believed the scripture. You know, there's some things you read it the first time and you're maturing in the faith and you don't understand. You say, well, that's the scripture and I know it's true, but I just can't get a grip on it. You grow in Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches you. You mature in the faith. You read it again. It means a little more to you and a little more. It's the living word. It talks to you. It divides the soul from the spirit. This is the way the disciples were. Uh, listening to him, they would have probably thought the same thing that the Jewish leaders there would, were saying. This great massive temple with these huge blocks, building stones, you're saying that if someone tears it down, you can raise it up in three days? Well, that's not what Jesus said at all. His disciples then after his resurrection understood that. The sign of his resurrection. Now down to verse 23. Then when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover, in the feast, let me stop there. The feast of the Passover was an exciting time for kids in a Jewish home because they were challenged to go around with a little miniature broom and a little spoon and get up everything that looked like it had leaven in it. And the winner would be the kid who had scooped up the most leaven. Before the people of God could enjoy the feast of the Passover, they had to be sure that the house had no leaven in it. Leaven is sin in the Bible. So it speaks back to the house of his father, the temple. How can you allow sin in this house? So in the feast, many believed in his name. Well, isn't that the whole thing that John says at the end of it? They believed in his name beholding his signs that he was doing. Did you know I speak as a pastor with, let's see, I don't know, a lot of years experience, 40 something years. Man, I've had the revivals and I've had all this stuff and we've had special days and and I've watched them respond to the invitation. And you'd baptize in a revival if you had a real, if you had a real hot preacher. And he had, the, he had the right stories to tell. He could extend that invitation and add another thing to it until he knew he'd get two or three more out of the next verse. And at the end of their revival, you baptize 60, 75. Then where were they? Where were they?
was that way in the day of, of Jesus, it's that way today. Where are they? Look at this. Many believed in his name, what? Beholding his signs that he was doing. However, on his part, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. You know, this same bunch of people are going to crucify him. They were still hooked on the first coming Jesus. They were still bypassing the need for the Jesus uh, on the second coming. They were still bypassing the first coming. And if you take, if you accept the first coming, the suffering servant, then you have to confess that you're a sinner and that you fall short yourself and that you need God to save you, that you cannot save yourself. Where most of these people are at this point in time is they're believing in his signs because they're believing that he's the one who's going to come in and kick out the Romans and set up the kingdom. They're not acknowledging their need for a savior. They're not going to confess their sins while they're Jews. They're in the temple. They do all that's necessary. They're very, God is very impressed with them. Look, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Oh, please, God, may Christ have entrusted himself to me. Because of his knowing all men. Look at this. He had no need that anyone should testify concerning the man. For he himself knew what was in the man. I'll tell you something. Jesus knows you. Knows your heart. Knows whether or not you're saved. It might be that you've walked the aisle a thousand times and you've been baptized in the ocean so many times you can call every fish by name. But that Christ has not entrusted himself to you. The only way that Christ will entrust himself to you is that if you confess sin and acknowledge that there is nothing good in you, not one thing, in all of my life, I will never provide a work good enough to save me. I cannot claim my own righteousness. I have none. If I am righteous before God, it is because God has covered me in the righteousness of Christ. That's all. There's nothing under that cloak that I can claim. I can only claim Christ. People claim works. There is no work that can save you. Now, built into salvation, there are good works, but it is Christ in you. And I would submit to you that when those things flow through your life, you don't even recognize it as a good work. It's just Christ in you. 
But when people do things to impress Christ, they're filling up the wrong set of books in heaven. Books that will bring a charge against them. We have but this one thing. That Christ would save us. Cleanse us by his blood. Take our place and give us his place. Take our sin to the cross and provide us with his perfection and righteousness. That's all we have. We don't have anything else. Now, these who came to Christ, they claimed it all for themselves. But Christ knows man. You see this? I love this. He has no need that anyone should testify. Christ doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. He saved me because he extended grace to me. I didn't deserve it. He doesn't need me. Listen, when he got me, he didn't get anything special. <laughs> There's nothing special about me. I fail all the time. I get grumpy. I'm fat and ugly. I'm old. And then someday I'll just be dust and bones. What did he get when he got me? I'll tell you what he got. He got the gift that the Father gave him from before the foundation of the world, and that's it. That's it. So... Christ knows you. He knows whether or not you're one of his own. He knows your heart. He knows your humility. He knows whether or not you're claiming works in this life to impress others and to gain notoriety in heaven. It's impossible. It's impossible. He had no need that anyone should testify concerning the man. That is man, mankind. For he himself knew what was in the man. Jesus is never deceived and he is never fooled by anybody. Not anybody. I'm going to stop there. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. According to the Word of God, if you will admit that you're a sinner, just take the place of a helpless sinner. And if you will believe in Jesus, there is no other Savior. And if you call on him to save you, for we are taught whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God in Christ will save you. He's our only hope. Our only hope. Just a moment, we'll stand. If you would come to Christ today and you were to come and take me by the hand, just let me pray with you. Maybe you're here and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation and you want to join this church. 
We'll take care of all of the details. You come. If you would prefer to sit down and talk with someone about this, then after the invitation, as you leave, we will have deacons and their wives in the rooms right across the hall and you can sit down and they'll pray with you and discuss these things with you. This is God's time with you. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation as you see fit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?